0: Well, I, I called this series The Unsatisfying Pursuit of Happiness. And I thought it would be appropriate because uh, in this Christmas season, the culture and everything around us, and, and let's be honest, even our own spirits uh, at times cry out for more stuff. We become very materialistic during this season. And we want more things. We want more stuff. We want bigger and better and newer and shinier. And, and, uh, and we start to think, even though we... we The Spirit of God is whispering to us all the time that uh, that is not where your happiness lies. Your happiness does not lie in stuff. But we're immersed in a culture that thinks that way. We swim in that culture. In many ways, we're being pickled by that culture. And we don't even know how it's influencing us all the time. Uh, A a cucumber uh, does not know, has no uh, uh, ability to know that it is being... Uh, turned into a pickle uh, uh, in, when it's placed in that briny uh, mixture of vinegar and other things and spices. It doesn't, it doesn't know, but that's what's happening. It's being transformed from one thing into another. And the same thing is happening to us all the time in this culture. We're being pickled in the juices of this culture that are very materialistic, that delight in stuff and things and, uh, and seems to communicate that this is the way to have Happiness. Uh, there was a commercial we saw on television last night where something is going on. It was a car commercial. And uh, something is going on that is uh, noisy and chaotic, uh, as all of our families can be at times. And the mom just kind of gets overwhelmed and she goes to the garage and sits in the luxury car that's in the, sitting in the garage, you know, to communicate that. Oh, peace you know we 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 have this tendency to think that, that there's some place else there's something else there's something that I can do or gain or have that is going to make me happy um, it's a lie and the book of Haggai has a lot to say about this so I called it the the unsatisfying pursuit of happiness or you might uh, shorten it to how to lose at winning there's a way of winning at life of gaining things and stuff and gaining comfort and convenience and security that actually you're losing. And you're losing out on God's best and you're losing out on uh, what God has called you to. And so the book of Haggai is one of these books that, that talks about a time in Israel's life when this was going on with Israel and what God thought about it and what God said to them. From time to time, all of us need a reality check on our priorities, and that's what this book is. It's it's a book. Haggai is the it's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Just two chapters. The first chapter is only fifteen verses long, and the second chapter is twenty three. Very short, and yet you could think of Haggai as a, a short study of getting our priorities right. And if there's any time of the year when we need to do that, it's at Christmas time. We need to have and get our priorities right and hopefully keep our priorities right um, uh, throughout the year. Um, The year that Haggai takes place was the year 520 BC. We know this with really precision because of the way that the book uh, speaks and because of what is said in the book. How many of you have ever had this this kind of a conversation You're telling a story about something that happened in your family or something that you were a part of and then you as you're telling the story you say wait 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 no it wasn't it wasn't in 2002 it was in it was in it had to be in 2004 because uh i we had our first child in 2004 and they were a lot live when this story occurred (laughs) how many of you had a conversation something like that happened raise your hand high. i want everybody okay so so we've had that experience well this book is one of those kinds of stories for the whole Old Testament. Because of the precision of, of what we know in the book and what we know from outside happening in, in the world of the ancient uh, Mesopotamian world, we are able to d- date large swaths of the Old Testament with great precision uh, because of this book. And I'll get to that in just a moment as we, as we work through uh, this text. Um, Suddenly stopped working. Okay, there it is. Almost 70 years have passed since the Jews were exiled from their land when this book takes place, and it's 520 BC. In fact, to be more precise, it is August 29th, 520 BC, when God speaks through Haggai in this book to the nation of Israel that has returned after almost 70 years uh, have passed since the Jews were exiled from the land. Now, they were exiled from the land because they had not lived by the right priorities while they were in the land. For 70 years, they had failed to give the land its commanded Sabbath. And so God said, I will give my land its Sabbath and you will be um, uh, exiled for 70 years uh, before you return to this land i'll give the land my my uh, my rest that i commanded you to give it because you didn't give it they weren't living by the right priorities uh they they weren't living for god's glory and so god exiled them from the land and now he's bringing them back uh, almost 70 years later we'll, i'll show you how that gets dated in just a moment during that time the promised land has shrunk to shriveled to about 20 square miles so the once, the, the promised land had been large and now it has shrunk down to just about 20 square miles is what is left when they return. And, and when they return, they return to a land that uh, the, in Jerusalem and all the towns of the region are in ruins. The fields are overrun with weeds. You, most of you uh, that are living in a house, you have shingles on the top of your uh, house that are 20 to 30 year shingles. That's how long they last. That's how long they last if you do the right kinds of maintenance on them. That is, you're taking the leaves out of the gutters. You're, you're, when, when branches fall on the roof, you remove those branches so that they're not you know uh, banging around everything. You, you take those things away. But when you're away for 70 years, uh, those 20- and 30-year shingles are going to be a shambles. Many of those houses, in, 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 even in the modern age, would have holes in the roof, there would be things growing inside the house that are not supposed to be growing inside houses. And that's what the people come back to. They come back to a land that has been devastated because of their disobedience and God's discipline of them. They come back in fulfillment of prophecy that they're going to come back, God's going to bring them back a hundred years before, there is a guy by the name of Cyrus. There's a prophecy that says, under Cyrus, uh, 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 you will, get, you will go, come back. The, uh, the return will go back uh, to uh, is, I- Israel. Now Cyrus has come. Cyrus has let the people go. They have arrived back. Some of them have come back. But farming is blighted, and there's lots of crop failures, and God's going to tell them why uh, in this text that I'm going to read and uh, in fact in chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 he talks about a little bit more about those crop failures eventually driven by poverty fellow jews would sell one another into slavery because of debt fellow jews were actually selling one another selling their children into slavery because of debt and poverty and uh, all because they were not following God as they should jealousy and hatred had developed toward those Jews who stayed behind and never went into exile and then on top of that there were a group of of uh, Samaritans Uh, the Jews had endured the opposition of the Samaritans when they attempted to rebuild the temple so when they first came back they started to they came back in 539 they started to come back in 539 Uh, 536 another group came back they started to build the temple they got uh, they got a little ways into that job they got discouraged by the Samaritans who uh, fought against them and they stopped building the temple it was just too difficult they said and so they started investing in other things and at that point God, in 520, after the uh, 16 years of not working on the temple, God sends Haggai the prophet. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Chapter 1, Haggai. With that backdrop, here's what happens. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house? is desolate now therefore thus says the lord of hosts consider your ways you have sown much but harvest little you eat but there is not enough to be satisfied you drink but there's not enough to become drunk you put on clothing but no one is warm enough and he who earns earns wages to put into a purse with holes thus says the lord of hosts consider your ways Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its due, to the earth and has withheld its produce. I called you, I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Now, here's what happens there's the message from God, here's how the people respond. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. God's word for us. You may be seated. Darius is the king that succeeded Cyrus. Cyrus gave the command. He's now off the scene. Now Darius is the king, and this prophecy gets dated to this specific date, the second year of Darius the king. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai on that day, and the people responded to uh, that message. There is, in this message, there's Uh, In in this uh, book, there's five different messages to occur uh, that we just read uh, on um, August uh, of uh, 520 uh, B.C. Uh, The two that start in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to uh, verse 13. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord. There's the second message, just those three verses then there's a, another message that comes in the seventh, um, um, in the twenty-first uh, day of the seventh month. The word of the Lord came. That was in uh, September, and then the next one comes, uh, the end of the book, in on the ninth day, uh, uh, ninth month, and that would be December 18th. That's when that one occurred. We'll get to that in the following weeks. God's word to his people. So what's God saying? See, the passage we're looking at is, and, and the situation teach us much about what is important to God. And even though the land is desolate, even though the houses need to be rebuilt, even though there's uh, fields that need to be plowed, and there's all kinds of things that need to happen in the land, even that, though that's true, the most important thing, the surprising thing about our God is that even in that situation, He wants the first priority of His people to be the pursuit of His glory. The number one priority for believers in any age is to pursue the glory of the great God that they serve. Not their own convenience, not their own experience, not their own security, not their own um, security or convenience or or, uh, uh, or anything other than his glory. This is the number one priority that needs to be happening in all of our hearts. And our culture is always working at cross purposes to that. Not just at Christmas time. The culture is always relentlessly getting you and I to try and uh, to focus on other things as the first priority in life. This book is about other things. Verse 8, Go up to the mountain, bring wood to rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and glorified. Here's the biblical truth. The biblical truth is this, that when God's people pursue his glory, their joy succeeds. When God's people don't pursue His glory as the number one priority, their joy never rises as high as God wants it to rise. Because His glory and our success uh, are tied together. Ask, we need to ask the right questions when we come to a text like this. And what are the right questions? How does my life expand the fame of God? How does my life, the way I live my life, the way I spend my dollars, the way I spend my time, how, 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 how does my life, the way I relate to other people, people who can help me and people who can't help me, how, how does my life reflect that I'm living for the fame of God? Does the way that I conduct my life make people want to know the God I love? Does the way that I'm living make other people want to know the God I love. And, and that, is a, that is a long obedience in the same direction. You've got to keep doing that until the neighbor finally wakes up by the Spirit of God and sees you're living for a whole, wholly different set of values than they are. I have a friend who, one of the things that he does is he's got, he's got um, on, on one side of him, he's got a family with two little girls. And on the other side, he has a divorced guy who uh, is raising two teenagers. And, uh, and, um, and he, has, he has full custody, and mom is nowhere to be found in the, in the mix. And so one of the things that he does to express the love of Christ in his neighborhood is whenever he cuts the, lo- cuts the lawn, he goes and cuts the front lawn of the family on the right and he cuts the front lawn of the family on the left simply because he's simply saying, if I can, if I can give that mom and dad and that divorced dad a little bit more time with their children, that's a win for the kingdom. He's just serving his neighbors he's just loving his neighbors he's just hoping and praying that they will see that he's living for a different set of values so that's that's a good investment that's what we we all should be doing that's what I should be doing that's what you should be doing those kinds of things eventually driven by poverty I said that before I'm on the wrong page here let me get through my notes here's, here's the third question Do my life choices reflect my will or his will? These are questions. That, you know, uh, as a church planter, when I was a, a church planter and mentoring church planters, one of my jobs as a church planter was to. Uh, I got this from a, another church planter by the name of Sam Douglas down in big old Texan down in Texas, and uh, and he, he he said, and I adopted this as a philosophy. Marty, your job as a, as a mentor of church planters is to interrogate the reality of the church planter. That's what God is doing here. He's interrogating the reality of our lives through this prophecy, just as he was interrogating the reality of the lives of Israel during the time of Hag- uh, Haggai on uh, December, uh, in, in December of um, 520 B.C. He's interrogating reality. He's trying to get us to consider our ways. So we're asking the right questions. We want to do that. And then, is it possible that much of the trouble in my life, in our lives, is there because I or we have failed to give God his proper place in our affections? One year, a man came to my, my uh, office, and he was, he was working like 80 hours a week. He was a mechanic. Uh, he worked on Volkswagen Bugs. He was an expert on Volkswagen Bugs. He had a bug kind of, I forget what the name of it, but it had some, something about Volkswagen in it. And it, he, he, had, he had done well at, at one point, but now he's working 80, 70, you know, 90 hours a week sometimes. And he can't get ahead. He can't pay his bills. He can't, nothing is happening. And as a, he's not, he's he stopped coming to church. He's, he, he professes to believe, but um, there's, there's no evidence in his life. And I'm having a lot of counseling sessions with his children and with his wife. So finally he comes in and we begin to talk and he tells me that, you know, I just don't get it. I'm, I'm working hard. I'm trying to get ahead. I'm trying to pay my bills. I, I, I give a, a good, um, you know, a, a good job for the, for the money I charge. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm praying as I'm talking to him, I'm listening to him, I'm thinking of scriptures, I'm writing down scriptures that are coming to mind that I want to find a way at some point to share with him. And at at one point, I didn't hear voices, but I heard the voice of God. I knew that God was speaking, and the question was, ask him this, has it ever occurred to you that God may not be blessing your business because He is not the number one priority in your life. And you could tell from the look on his face that that was a thought that had never come onto his radar screen. Never. But it should from texts like this. That's why God says, consider your ways. You're working hard. You're bringing it home. You're putting money into a purse with holes. It's just gone I, and you bring it home, and I blew it away. I just took it away. So I challenged them. I said, Here's what, here, I want to challenge you to do this. For the next two months, don't work on Sunday. Come to church, sit with your family, read your Bible, and seek to lead your family spiritually. At one point in the conversation, he said to me, he said, you know, we don't, it, it just doesn't make sense that I'm not getting the jobs that, that I should be. Somebody asked me about that, because it's not, I don't need to go into that to make this point. I shouldn't have started that story. <laughs> oh, I'm tired after having all the grandchildren with us. It was chaos, but it was wonderful chaos. Here's what happened as they began to consider their ways, as they listened to the voice of God. And as they started to ask questions like these, I suppose, they they made a choice. Here were the actions that they took. In chapter 1, verse 12, we're told that they obeyed the voice of the Lord. And then we're told that God, that they showed reverence for the Lord. Previously, they hadn't been. They'd been more interested in their own convenience, and their own security, and their own comfort. But God had said, consider your ways, and they stepped back and they said, okay, we've been living in our paneled houses, we've been building our own houses, we've been building our own nest egg, our own comfortable place, and we haven't been giving God priority, we're going to the mountains and we're going to get some wood, and we're going to start milling it, and we're going to start paneling the house of God, we're going to start building the house of God. They immediately started doing that. So how does this affect us? And I'm going to have four points at the end of this long build-up here. Well, God says, he, He gives a promise that, He says, I am with you, but look when it comes. Verse 12 says that they obeyed, The voice of the Lord their God. Verse 13 says, Great comfort, I am with you. Sometime you ought to do this. Go to uh, BibleGateway.com, type in the phrase, I am with you. Just type in that phrase, I am with you. And look where that, how many times that phrase occurs in the Bible when God says, I am with you. It covers two pages of references. It's God bringing comfort to the people that when you, when you obey me, then you know that I am with you. I'll support you. Now, was God with them when they were disobeying? Yes. He was with them in discipline. Right? Right? But when he says it here, he's saying, I'm with you when you are, and that's a phrase from the Bible as well, I'm with you when you are with me. He wants our hearts all the time. God is always aiming at our hearts. He always wants all of us. That's why we worship him. We bow before him. He doesn't bow before us. So, they obeyed. God says I am with you and the Lord stirred up their spirit of their leaders so how does all this affect us well it helps us to see that things that we struggle with are not new to the people of God the things that you're struggling with are the exact same things that the Israelites struggled with things that I struggle with exact same thing that they struggled with and the solutions are the same it suggests that That the solutions are the same. That when we get our hearts right and we begin to say, Lord, I want you to have number one priority in my life. I want you to be number one. I want want your will to be number one, not my will. God says the same thing to us. I am with you. And it reminds us that our happiness is always connected to his glory. That, That as we pursue his glory, he gives us success. He gives us joy, but we have to get it right. We have to get the order right. The order is to pursue his glory, and then our joy, our success will follow. Now, that doesn't mean that there's, that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and, and wise. It doesn't mean that. It's not a prosperity gospel thing, but there is a connection to obeying him and the blessings that he will give that he does in our lives. So how does all this affect us? See, it directs us to a rigorous examination of our hearts that invites the presence of God. And what this means is that you cannot escape the discipline of God in any way that will contribute to your happiness. You can try to wiggle your way out from under the discipline of God at different times in your life, and try to insulate yourself in various ways that people try, in, uh, that we all try at different times. But mark this: when you wiggle out from under the discipline of God, you're not—you you're, you're, may be doing a pressure relief valve, but you're not—you're not creating a better situation for yourself. God God knows what's going on. This is going to be my, my first point here in just a moment. God's glory and your happiness succeed together. And therefore, our number one priority should be the pursuit of the greater glory of God. That should be our number one priority. Whether you're in the military or in... An engineer or a housewife or a mother or uh, whatever it is you do in life, it doesn't matter. Number one priority should be the greater glory of God. Why? Now, here's the points four things to take away. Misplaced priorities. I put these in, in the form of principles. Misplaced priorities are known to God. He knows, he knows what, you can snow everybody else, but you can't snow God. You you can't cover things up with God. He knows, he, he, you know, you can sit there in, in in worship, have a Bible in your hand and be looking really attentive and not care one whit about actually being godly. Do you know that? People do that all over America. I hope they don't I hope there's not many of us in this church, but it happens all the time. People act good at acting good. But God always zeroes in on the heart. You know that, that you know when when Saul is rejected as the king and God says to Samuel, I look, I don't look on the outside, I look on the inside. I look at the heart. It's always looking there. It's really irritating. Because he always knows. I mean, you, he always knows. You're, you're looking really good and people are patting you on the back for being such a wonderful person. And, and inside you know. But it's not so. God always looks at the heart. He's always, he's a heart surgeon. He's always working on our hearts. Always looking. He, you, can't, you can't hide from him. And when we have misplaced priorities, God knows. So, verses 1 through 5, look what it says. You go to verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the, 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 for the house of the Lord to be, be rebuilt. You know, that it's just not the right time. It's just not the right time to build the house of the Lord. I, you know, I've got other priorities. I've got things I need to do. I, I, I know that I should be involved in that, but, to, you know. Not now. Now's not the right time. God says, I know what's going on in your heart. You're, you're more interested in your comfort and convenience and security than you are in my glory so i'm going to call you up short on it <coughs> verses seven through eight look what he says here Thus says the lord of hosts consider your ways go to the mountains bring wood rebuild the temple that i may be pleased with it and be glorified you look for much but behold it comes a little when you bring it home i blow it away why God is is inviting us. He's saying, you ought to be asking yourself this question. Why? Why isn't life working for me right now? Why? Go up to the mountains and bring the wood down. Consider your ways. Because my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. You know, literally, this this phrase... um, Uh, that's translated, consider your ways. The New American Standard has this marginal reference. It says, set your heart on this. Set your heart on this. Think about this and keep thinking about this. Set your heart on this. What's your priority? Literally, in the Hebrew, let me read it. um, It would be, um, make careful uh, thought of you to the ways of you. Be very careful. Look hard. Think hard about the things of you, in particular the ways of you, because the ways of you are a window to what's happening in your heart. Misplaced priorities are known to God. Second, misplaced priorities don't deliver. They Don't deliver what what you want them to. When When you're a believer, you claim to know God, uh, your misplaced priorities of living for something other than your God as the number one priority will not deliver what you want it to deliver it just do- it doesn 't Why would God allow you uh, to be satisfied in life without him why see he 's the greatest i 've said this before he 's the Think of this logically. He's the greatest being in the universe. He's the greatest lover in the universe. He's the greatest giver in the universe. He's the greatest forgiver. He's a great he's all merciful. He's the greatest being in the universe. If the greatest being in the universe wants to give you the greatest thing that he could possibly give you, at time in your life, what must he give you? He has to give himself. And that's what the gospel says. He did, he does and will do forever. That's why we worship him. Because we don't deserve him. So God, maybe God will allow a non-believer who doesn't love him and doesn't have that priority to have some level of happiness in the 70 or 100 years that they're going to live. Somebody was just found in South Carolina that's 116 years old. My wife told me that. Maybe they'll experience some happiness here and okay. But you and I, who believe in Christ, we've got eternity. And, and, it's, and the greatest being in the universe is incapable of letting eternity be boring. Incapable. Misplaced priorities don't deliver. Fourth, third, realigned priorities will be blessed by God. That's verses 12 through 13. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, and the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of the Haggai the prophet, for the Lord their God had sent them. And the people showed reverence for the Lord then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. See, when, when we turn, when we turn to Him and we say, Lord, you're number one, you're the one I, I love, you're the one I obey, you're the one I follow, you're the one who is merciful and forgiving. You've you've made a place for me, you've you've paid the price for me. You are worthy of all my worship, all my adoration. And God says, I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, some people say, well, that's egotistical of God. No. It'd be egotistical when you and I do that. (laughs) Because we're not the greatest being in the universe. But when the greatest being in the universe wants praise and worship from us is because he's worthy of it and because he's tied our happiness to acknowledging his worthiness. Fourth, realigned priorities take effort. Takes efforts. I don't know why I had a plural there. But look at verses 14 and 15. So the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord. It's not, it's not just, you know, you just proclaim this, okay, Lord, you're, you're number one, and then you go live your life the way that you have been living it. There's some, there's some things that have to be done. You've got to take some action. You've got to work. You, gotta, you, you have to make some effort. Now your effort doesn't, you know, it, in the New Testament, the, we, don't, we don't earn salvation, right? Salvation is a gift. But if you've received the gift, you want to work for the king. You want to tell the world about him. If you don't want to, maybe you haven't received him. Realigned priorities will be blessed by God and realigned priorities take efforts. But it all starts with us sitting down and considering our ways. Twice, God says in this text, consider your ways. Consider your ways. I'm I'm telling you something that you've been denying, that you've been living in in, in contrariness to. I'm showing you something that I'm aware of and I'm bringing it to your attention, I want you to consider your ways. How are you living? How does your life reflect the greater glory of God, and that you're living for altogether different priorities in the world? Or, if we're honest, do the way that we go about with our time and our money and our talents and uh, uh, the way that we relate to other people the training that we have, does it, does it reflect that he's not number one, we are? The Hebrew that says, consider your ways, the idea is that it's we continually do that. So this is not a one-time thing. This is not like, hey, man, I'm glad Pastor Marty preached that message. Whew, man, now I'll be okay the rest of my life. No. We've got to wake up this morning and remember, tomorrow morning, and remember that the drift of our soul, you know, I've said this before, our souls leak. We tend to forget very quickly. The drift of our soul is away from God without the efforts of living for God with realigned priorities that will be blessed by God. Because we've recognized that our priorities were all messed up. And when we do that, and we get up the next morning and we say, Lord, help me live for you today. Lord, help me live for you today. Help me in every challenge today to live for your glory rather than mine. When we continually do that, and it becomes habitual, and it becomes a a little bit easier, and we make more progress, and we make more progress, and we're, we're seeing life, work, and we're seeing other people respond to the gospel that they hear and they see in us. There's still no time to relax because Satan is watching as well at your new effectiveness and loves to throw new stumbling blocks in front of you to get your priorities realigned away from God rather than towards God. This is a book that was written in 520 B.C. And there's nothing in it that you're not dealing with today. Not just next week or sometime in the future. Today. You know why that is? Because this is the word of the living God. And he knows exactly what your need is and what my need is on every day of the year. And Haggai is going to say a lot to us this Christmas season. I want the worship team to come. And as they come, I want to invite you one more time to write down any prayer requests that you have. Young men, any man that you want to learn, I want to learn how to study the Bible more, please write on your card, hey, Pastor Marty, I'm, I'm up for that. And uh, I'm up for learning that. Um, and then remember, too, our missionaries, uh, too, um, giving to our missionaries uh, this ends today and you can take this and put it in one of the boxes you can put it in this box too because it'll be in 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 this envelope and we'll we'll know what it is but any any of the boxes there's i think there's three of them uh you can put them in those boxes father we love you we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword it's able to divide between the, the thoughts and the intentions of men Praise you for that. This Christmas we pray that you would find our hearts moving rapidly closer to you. That our priorities would be realigned, that we would live for your glory, and that, it, that as we live for your glory, we would obey you and delight in you and find the surprise that the culture denies. That living for you is worth everything. Lord, do that so that you would be glorified in our lives, through our lives, in the earth, for the joy of everyone who knows us. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. In Christ's name, amen.